1: It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 278 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast.
1: All right. So as you guys will recall, in the last show, we talked about how the initial threat to Vicksburg developed in mid-May 1862, when the first ship of the Federal's West Gulf Blockading Squadron, commanded by David Farragut, arrived below the city and demanded the place's surrender. The Confederate commander replied defiantly, Mississippians don't know and refuse to learn how to surrender to an enemy.
0: And so a simple show of force by the Federals obviously wasn't going to work like it had at Baton Rouge and Natchez. That defiant response and the Confederate batteries up on Vicksburg's bluffs were proof of that. On top of that, Farragut was 400 miles above New Orleans. His squadron didn't have the number of troops he would need to take and hold Vicksburg, and the Union gunboats from upriver that were supposed to rendezvous with him were nowhere to be seen. So on May 26th, Farragut withdrew back downstream to New Orleans.
1: That's where we left off last time, but Farragut wasn't going to get off so easy. The powers that be in Washington had expected great things from his upriver expedition, and they were astonished to learn that Farragut hadn't even attempted to run past the Vicksburg batteries. The gunboats under Davis were coming down the Mississippi toward Vicksburg, and, in the minds of the President and the Navy Department, a meeting between Farragut and Davis would at least mark a symbolic opening of the river. And so Assistant Secretary of the Navy Gustavus Fox sent an angry message to Farragut in New Orleans. Fox said, The President requires you to use your utmost exertions without a moment's delay and before any other naval operations are permitted to interfere to open the Mississippi and effect a junction with Flag Officer Davis. End quote. Okay, well, a direct order from the president couldn't be ignored and so on june 6th farragut set out up river again
0: as it happened davis was still a long way from vicksburg on may 10th 1862 He and his ironclads had been attacked and severely mauled at Plum Point Bend, near Fort Pillow, about 40 miles above Memphis, by a little fleet of Confederate rams, really just a makeshift squadron of eight river steamers equipped with iron prowls to hull enemy ships. But catching the Federal's napping, the Confederates managed to sink two of Davis's ironclads by ramming before breaking off the attack. However, because they had settled in shallow water, the ironclads were later raised and put back into service. But the incident nevertheless greatly embarrassed the Federals.
1: Influenced by events elsewhere, the Confederates subsequently evacuated Fort Pillow without a fight on June 4th, but the pesky force of rebel rams at Memphis still barred Davis's way downriver. Before he could rendezvous with Farragut, Davis would have to deal with them. When he was ready to move, though, Davis also had a fleet of swift rams recently created by Charles Ellett, Jr. Ellett, a civil engineer, had selected seven civilian steamers for their speed and transformed them into effective rams. Commissioned a colonel in the Union Army and put in charge of the squadron of rams, Ellett brought in several family members as trusted subordinates. Nepotism aside, Ellett's fleet of rams proved its worth on June 6th at Memphis. As crowds of civilians watched from the riverbank, the Federal ironclads slowly steamed downriver as the rebel rams went out to meet them. Suddenly, Ellett's rams dashed through the ironclad formation to surprise the Confederates.
0: In swift-flowing action, the Union ships emerged victorious, having captured or knocked out of commission seven of the eight rebel vessels. The Federals would suffer only one fatality from the battle, but it was Charles Ellet who would die from his wound two weeks later.
1: At any rate, after the so-called Battle of the Rams, Memphis was now unprotected. That afternoon, one of the Elletts, young Charles Rivers Ellett, stepped ashore before a subdued citizenry and accepted the surrender of the city. Under federal control, Memphis would rapidly become a refuge for runaway slaves and a humming center of commerce, both legal and illegal. An estimated $20 million in black market goods would flow through the city and into Confederate hands over the next two years. In any event, immediately after the fall of Memphis, Davis lingered in the city with his ironclads while the Allet Rams steamed down the winding Mississippi in search of Farragut.
0: The second time Farragut arrived at Vicksburg on June eighteenth, 1862, he was better prepared. He had more than twice as many Union troops aboard his transports, 3,200 men in all, once again commanded by Brigadier General Thomas Williams. In addition, accompanying Farragut's squadron of big ocean-going warships was a fleet of mortar schooners, which could easily lob shells up onto the bluffs where the Confederate batteries were located. The mortar schooners were under Farragut's foster brother, Commander David Dixon Porter.
1: By this time, however, the Confederates had assembled a substantial force in and around Vicksburg under the overall command of Major General Earl Van Dorn. Van Dorn was a native of Port Gibson, Mississippi, a small town located about 30 miles downriver from Vicksburg. Van Dorn had recently suffered a resounding defeat at the Battle of Pea Ridge over in Arkansas, but Confederate President Jefferson Davis nevertheless gave him command of Vicksburg and the Department of Southern Mississippi and East Louisiana.
0: For his part, after arriving below Vicksburg on June 18th, Farragut wasted little time. The next day, Porter's mortar schooners began a steady but ineffective bombardment of the hill city. You see, the Confederate artillery batteries were almost impossible to hit with the inaccurate siege mortars used back then. Unnerved at first by the earth-shaking explosions of the huge shells, the rebels gradually realized that the bombardment's bark was worse than its bite. One Confederate officer dismissed the bombardment as, quote, the grand but nearly harmless sport of pitching big shells into Vicksburg.
1: Morale among Vicksburg's defenders and civilians steadied, then rose at the end of June when Major General John C. Breckenridge arrived with a veteran division of rebel troops, bringing Van Dorn's strength up to about 15,000 men.
0: On June 24th, the Union Rams, now commanded by Charles Ellett's younger brother, Lieutenant Colonel Alfred Ellett, approached the west side of DeSoto Point, the neck of land where the Mississippi made a hairpin turn immediately above Vicksburg. The masts of Farragut's ships were visible on the east side of the narrow peninsula, so Ellett sent a courier across the swampy terrain.
1: Farragut was pleased at having made contact with a portion of the upriver Federal force, but he was puzzled as to why Davis would linger at Memphis. And so Ellett dispatched a ram with a request from Farragut, asking that Davis proceed to Vicksburg as quickly as possible.
0: Several days later, the gunboats and support vessels of Davis's flotilla arrived and reunited with the Ellett Rams above Vicksburg. That meant Union saltwater warships and brownwater ironclads now were only five or six miles apart by water and less than two miles by land.
1: Farragut realized that from a purely military standpoint, it would serve no real purpose to run his ships past Vicksburg in order to join Davis's flotilla upriver. But he also knew that the President and Navy Department expected him to do it anyway. Remember, we said earlier that a meeting between Farragut's and Davis's forces would at least mark a symbolic opening of the Mississippi, and the powers that be in Washington knew that would mean a great deal to Midwesterners who had been stewing since the start of the war over the Great River's closure by the rebels." so militarily it might make little sense for Farragut to run his ships past the Vicksburg batteries and link up with Davis. But, for political reasons, it was exactly what Washington expected him to do. So before sunrise on June 28th, Farragut's ships formed into line and started upriver.
0: When Farragut decided to take his warships upriver past Vicksburg, he left behind Porter and his mortar schooners, as well as the transports with William's troops. Before dawn on the morning of June 28, as the rest of Farragut's ships steamed within sight of the Hill City, the Confederate artillery along the river, now increased to 29 guns of varying size and type, roared into action.
1: Within minutes the river was blanketed by a cloud of gun smoke lit up by muzzle flashes, exploding shells, and huge bonfires intended to provide illumination for the rebel gunners. Crawling upstream against the current, Farragut's ships were under fire for an hour, but amazingly none of the Federal vessels were sunk or seriously damaged. Although the passage wasn't without cost, since eight men were killed and thirty-eight wounded.
0: But for the first time, the Union naval forces that had gained control over so much of the Mississippi River saw each other. There were those who noted that there could hardly have been a more vivid contrast between the two groups of warships.
1: Officers and men of the West Gulf Blockading Squadron crowded the rails and looked down through the ventilation gratings that top the partially armored casemates of the city-class ironclads. Farragut's big ships were still majestic, even though their upper masts, spars, and rigging had been removed prior to the run past Vicksburg, while the saltwater tars on them thought the ugly, stubby ironclads were aptly nicknamed Turtles. Most of the men on Davis's flotilla were Midwesterners, Borrowed from the army, who had never seen an ocean-going vessel before, and they gawked at the huge sloops of war.
0: While Union sailors traded stories and friendly insults above Vicksburg, General Williams disembarked his troops from the transports below the city and set them to work digging a ditch across the base of De Soto Point. The idea was to create a canal that would allow vessels to bypass the rebels' heavy guns at Vicksburg. Farragut, Davis, and Williams even hoped the canal might divert the Mississippi into a new course and leave Vicksburg high and dry, thus rendering the Hill City and its defenses militarily useless.
1: A canal across level terrain seemed a fairly straightforward engineering exercise. But the dense clay subsoil of the peninsula resisted shovels and picks, and the river dropped faster than the men could dig. Malaria, dysentery, and other diseases decimated the troops. Williams rounded up a thousand slaves from nearby plantations and put them to work alongside his soldiers, but the additional manpower still proved inadequate and the work finally sputtered to a stop.
0: The one important result of this fiasco was the destruction of the eastern terminus of the Vicksburg, Shreveport, and Texas Railroad, which ran between DeSoto Point and Monroe, Louisiana. From now on, the lines of communication and supply between the eastern and western halves of the Confederacy would be reduced to an all-water route between Shreveport and Vicksburg, a route that could only be used when the Red River and Mississippi River were free of Union warships.
1: Farragut was convinced that the Navy had done all that they could do for the present moment. He believed the Confederates couldn't be pried out of Vicksburg, quote, so long as they have the military force to hold the back country, end quote. By this he meant the railroad connection to Jackson, the state capital, some forty-five miles east of Vicksburg. Resting control of the back country, away from the rebels, was obviously a job for the army, but Farragut warned Washington it would take a force of infantry many times the size of the one he had brought with him upriver.
0: Unfortunately, Union military forces in the West in the summer of 1862 were stretched dangerously thin, and neither Henry Halleck up in St. Louis nor Benjamin Butler down in New Orleans had any men to spare.
1: And so, with nothing more that could be done at the present moment, Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells ordered Farragut to withdraw back downriver to New Orleans wells reasoned that the west gulf blockading squadron had accomplished much despite being out of its element there in the interior of north america he wouldn't continue to expose the men and ships to danger unless there was something concrete to be gained
0: even before he received the order to withdraw Farragut had decided on his own that it was time for him to go Sickness among both sailors and soldiers had risen to truly alarming proportions, and the level of the the Mississippi was dropping. This was a normal occurrence in late summer and fall that posed a particularly serious danger to Farragut's deep-draft warships.
1: On the eve of Farragut's departure, the Union Navy was involved in one of the most memorable episodes of the struggle for control of the Mississippi River. You see, for weeks the Federals had picked up rumors that the Confederates were building an ironclad gunboat somewhere up the Yazoo River. The vessel in question was the Arkansas. During the last week of June, while waiting for Davis to arrive from Memphis, Alfred Ellett took two rams up the shallow, winding Yazoo, which flowed into the Mississippi several miles above Vicksburg.
0: Ellett only penetrated the Yazoo a short distance, but the rebels panicked, burning three ships, including the only survivor of the fight at Memphis. Ellett didn't encounter the Arkansas, which was still being fitted out at Yazoo City, but his probe did spur the Confederates to bring the ironclad out as quickly as possible, lest she be trapped and destroyed by a more powerful Union expedition.
1: Two weeks later, Davis did exactly the sort of thing the Confederates were worried about. He sent a tiny flotilla of three mismatched ships, the Ironclad Carondelet, Timberclad Tyler, and Ram Queen of the West, on another probe up the Yazoo, under the command of Captain Henry Walk. If Davis hoped to obtain information about the elusive rebel Ironclad, Then the expedition was a complete success, because as they made their way up the winding river, sailors on the leading Union ship saw an odd-looking vessel steaming toward them. The Federals had found the Arkansas.
0: The Arkansas had been completed at Yazoo City under the direction of her commander, Lieutenant Isaac Brown, one of the most capable officers in the Confederate Navy.
1: Like all rebel ironclads, the Arkansas reflected the weak industrial base of the southern economy. Boat rights in Memphis had produced a strong wooden hull and superstructure, but the engines and drivetrain within were weak and unreliable.
0: Iron plating was unavailable, so the gunboat was covered with rails taken up from abandoned railroads. Even paint was lacking in the backwoods of Mississippi, and the rust-colored armor, smokestack, anchors, and other iron components gave the vessel a distinctive, mottled, reddish-brown appearance.
1: Despite her flaws, which were many, the Arkansas was still a formidable gunboat, and the Federals were right to be wary of her. Meanwhile, at Vicksburg, Van Dorn was beside himself with, with frustration at being forced to maintain a passive defensive posture. He was desperate to strike a blow at the dozens of Yankee vessels lying above and below the hill city. On June 24, the day Farragut and Elt first made contact, he had urged Brown to bring the Arkansas down to Vicksburg to smite the enemy, saying, quote, "It is better to die game." And do some execution, than to lie by and be burned up in the Yazoo. End quote.
0: Three weeks passed before Brown felt his vessel was ready to do some execution, but on July fourteenth the ironclad got up steam and proceeded down river. Neither captain nor crew knew quite what to expect from their untried warship.
1: The next day, July fifteenth. The Arkansas resumed her journey down the Yazoo. About 10 miles from the Mississippi River, the ironclad encountered Wach's tiny flotilla probing upstream. Brown didn't hesitate but steamed directly toward the Yankees. The Union ships panicked and quickly turned around and fled downriver.
0: The Arkansas caught up to the Carondelet and drove the slow-moving Federal Ironclad into the riverbank then hurried off after the other two enemy vessels, firing shot after shot through their wooden superstructures.
1: The timber-clad Tyler put up a remarkable fight with her single stern gun. She wrecked the Arkansas's pilot house and tore the stack away from the boilers. The interior of the rebel ironclad filled with smoke, and she lost most of her speed pursued and pursuer entered the mississippi and churned downriver toward the union anchorage on the west side of the soto point
0: the arkansas rounded a bend and found herself among the yankee warships and gunboats lining both banks of the mississippi most of the federal vessels didn't have steam up because of a shortage of coal and so were unable to move
1: the arkansas plowed slowly through the enemy anchorage firing left and right, while the Union gunners tried to hit the low-lying rebel ironclad without striking their comrades. It was all over in thirty minutes. Several Union vessels were hit, including one ram that was struck in the steam drum and suffered numerous casualties. Although the Arkansas didn't emerge unscathed, she did make it around DeSoto Point and reached the safety of Vicksburg.
0: An excited Earl Van Dorn had watched the latter stages of the running fight from the cupola of the Warren County Courthouse. Thousands of less privileged spectators lined the bluffs and climbed atop other buildings. The Arkansas had made her long-awaited appearance and had done so in the most dramatic manner possible. In a single stroke, Union naval superiority on the Mississippi had been neutralized, or so it seemed.
1: The affair was the talk of the town. A Confederate artilleryman noted, "Every one is elated and astonished at the daring achievement." End quote. As for the Federals, Davis was philosophical about the incident, while Farragut was embarrassed and infuriated. He feared that the Arkansas would attack the mortar schooners and transports anchored below Vicksburg which were protected by only a handful of Union warships.
0: Well, Farragut was no less a man of action than Van Dorn or Brown, and he decided to return downriver past Vicksburg that very evening and sink the rebel ironclad while she lay immobile at the town's docks. At the very least, the presence of his squadron below Vicksburg would prevent the Arkansas from rampaging downstream
1: and so shortly after sunset on July 15th, Farragut's ships and the ram Sumter rounded De Soto Point and steamed past Vicksburg. Farragut had planned to make his move when the setting sun would be in the eyes of the rebels, but delays prevented his fleet from going into action until twilight, when the rusty Arkansas was almost invisible against the East Bank. Farragut reported, I looked with all the eyes in my head, to no purpose. We could see nothing but the flash of the enemy's guns to fire at.
0: Van Dorn had guessed that Farragut might attempt such a move, and had every Confederate cannoneer at his station as the sun sank. A tremendous exchange of fire erupted between the Federal ships and Rebel shore batteries— Farragut managed to pass Vicksburg safely, but darkness and smoke prevented his vessels from striking the Arkansas a fatal blow.
1: Davis declined to join in the attack. He believed that tackling the Arkansas while she lay protected under the batteries of Vicksburg was a poor tactical decision. He thought it better to wait for the rebel ironclad to emerge and then engage her. Nevertheless, after some prodding from Farragut, Davis agreed to a limited follow-up action. On July 22nd, Ellet and the ram Queen of the West and the ironclad Essex, under Commander William Porter, brother to David Dixon Porter and foster brother to Farragut, set out in an attempt to ram the stationary Arkansas.
0: However, as they rounded DeSoto Point and approached the Vicksburg docks, the Union vessels were buffeted by powerful eddies and pounded by the Confederate shore batteries. Both only managed to strike glancing blows against the Arkansas. Firing point-blank, though, the Essex also sent several solid shots smashing through the Rebel ironclad's armor.
1: The speedy Queen of the West returned upstream to rejoin Davis's flotilla, but the ponderous Essex joined Farragut downriver. You see, like all of the underpowered Union ironclads, the Essex could barely stem the current of the Mississippi. If she had tried to inch her way upstream, she would have been a nearly stationary target for the Confederate gunners.
0: The whole thing was a fizzle, declared one disappointed Federal officer. But while Farragut and Davis had failed to sink the Confederate ironclad, the repeated hammering had taken a toll on her crew, hull, armor, and machinery. After the Essex disappeared downriver amid a storm of shell splashes, Lieutenant Brown had only 20 officers and men left on their feet, barely enough to serve two of the Arkansas's guns.
1: The hull was holed, planks were sprung, and many of the railroad tracks bolted to the casemate were broken, buckled, or knocked loose. Even more alarming was the condition of the ironclad's rickety propulsion system. The engines had never worked properly, and now after the stresses and shocks of the past few days, they hardly worked at all. Two weeks would pass before the battered rebel ironclad was back in anything resembling fighting shape. History never says goodbye, it just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form.
2: And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We
1: take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time. And the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts.
2: What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth better yet. What's something you didn't learn at all. That was omitted completely. That's what i like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.
0: It should be noted that both Farragut and Davis were correct in their assessments of the situation. Farragut, because the mere existence of the Arkansas, had a strong psychological effect on all concerned. Both sides imbued the rattle-trap ironclad with an importance wildly out of proportion to her actual capabilities.
1: Because of this, Farragut was correct in attempting to destroy the Arkansas at the earliest possible moment, or at the very least demonstrate the Union Navy's willingness to engage her under even the most unfavorable circumstances, lest she become a warship with a reputation of mythical proportions. Certainly, Van Dorn viewed the ironclad as a gift of the gods and did all he could to use her as a rallying point for the defense of Vicksburg and a means of reasserting Confederate control of the Mississippi.
0: But then Davis's cooler appraisal was based on a reasonably accurate assessment of the Arkansas's capabilities, and in the end, his view that the ironclad would prove vulnerable as soon as she ventured away from Vicksburg turned out to be correct.
1: Once again finding himself below Vicksburg, and with nothing more really to do, Farragut picked up General William's sadly depleted Army Brigade and withdrew once again back downriver to New Orleans. There he learned that he'd been promoted to Rear Admiral for his capture of the Crescent City back in the spring. It was a singular honor since it made Farragut the first admiral in the history of the U.S. Navy. However, he received the news with mixed feelings, after what he considered to be his failures at Vicksburg.
0: While proceeding downriver, Farragut had landed Williams and his soldiers at Baton Rouge. To support Williams, he detached William Porter with the Ironclad Essex, the Ram Sumter, and three other ships. Porter's primary responsibility was to cover the Union garrison and keep an eye out for the Arkansas.
1: He was also encouraged to patrol the miles of Winding River between Baton Rouge and Vicksburg in order to disrupt the flow of enemy men and supplies between the two halves of the Confederacy. It was a very large assignment for a handful of ships, one of which, the Essex, was handicapped by slow speed and limited mobility.
0: And then upriver, shortly after Farragut's departure from Vicksburg, Davis pulled his flotilla back to the mouth of the Yazoo. While sweltering there and accomplishing nothing much of significance, he learned that on July 12th, a federal army had occupied Helena, Arkansas. That city was located on the only high ground along the west bank of the Mississippi between Missouri and the Gulf of Mexico. In late July, Davis withdrew upriver to refit, and he stationed some of his gunboats at Helena to provide support for its isolated federal garrison. With regard to our story, we just need to remember that for the next 12 months, Helena would be the southernmost permanent Union enclave on the Mississippi above Vicksburg.
1: And so, after a series of stunning successes, the overextended Union forces on the Mississippi River had failed by a slim margin to cut the Confederacy in two. There had been relatively few combat casualties at Vicksburg, but losses due to illness in the unhealthy, suffocating heat and humidity were staggering. In fact, the real enemy for sailors and soldiers on both sides in the lower Mississippi Valley throughout the war was disease, primarily malaria, but also a host of quote, unquote, camp diseases, such as dysentery and typhoid.
0: The Union troops mired in the swamps of De Soto Point suffered the most, but the Confederate soldiers on the bluffs across the river were in miserable straits themselves. Forty percent of Van Dorn's men were sick by the time Farragut and Davis withdrew. A member of the 19th Tennessee admitted, quote, The condition of our men is truly deplorable, all sick, and I am pretty bad.
1: Despite this worrisome state of affairs, Van Dorn decided to seize the initiative. He recognized that Vicksburg, as a lone citadel on the Mississippi, was of limited strategic significance. Confederate possession of the Hill City denied Federal warships free use of the Great River, but did little else. Vicksburg was a single strong point, and that was the problem. Confederate control of the Mississippi was limited to the stretch of water within range of the Rebel batteries.
0: However, supplies from the Trans-Mississippi flowed down the Red River and then up the Mississippi to the docks at Vicksburg, where the railroad started them on their journey eastward. Recent events, though, had demonstrated that this route down the Red and up the Mississippi could be interdicted whenever there were Union warships along that stretch of water.
1: Van Dorn felt it was a, quote, matter of great necessity to us, that the tenuous all-water link between Shreveport and Vicksburg be kept open and free from interruption. To accomplish this, Van Dorn believed that the Confederacy had to maintain two strong points along the Mississippi, one above and one below the point where the Red River flowed into the Mississippi. Vicksburg was the northern anchor, and it seemed to Van Dorn that Baton Rouge was the obvious place to establish the southern anchor. The Mouth of the Red lay about halfway between the two cities. Even more important, Baton Rouge was located atop the southernmost section of the long line of bluffs extending downriver from Vicksburg. Finally, Baton Rouge was the capital of Louisiana, and recapturing it from the Yankees would boost southern morale.
0: If a rebel strongpoint at Baton Rouge could keep Union ships below that point and prevent the Yankees from interrupting the flow of supplies between Shreveport and Vicksburg, then the vital connection between the eastern and western halves of the Confederacy could be maintained.
1: Van Dorn also thought that Baton Rouge might be used as a jumping-off point for a bid to liberate New Orleans. That was wishful thinking, to put it mildly. But nevertheless, Van Dorn was right to attempt to roll back Union gains along the lower Mississippi before they could be consolidated.
0: Jefferson Davis agreed with Van Dorn's assessment of the strategic situation and his proposed solution. Davis wrote Van Dorn saying, quote, The importance of the object at which you aim cannot be overestimated.
1: And so on July 26, 1862, Van Dorn directed Breckinridge to quote, unquote, dislodge the Union garrison at Baton Rouge, which was composed largely of William's worn out and sick Federal infantry.
0: John C. Breckinridge and 4,000 Confederate troops rattled down the railroad from the Mississippi State capital of Jackson to Camp Moore, Louisiana, which was about 60 miles northeast of Baton Rouge. The rebel encampment there was flooded by torrential rains, and in the subtropical climate, the Confederate troops fell ill in droves.
1: When the water receded enough to allow Breckinridge to slog toward Baton Rouge, Through a miasma of heat and humidity, he had only about 2,500 men able to shoulder a musket and totter forward into battle. By coincidence, that was almost exactly the number of Yankees Williams could turn out to defend Baton Rouge. That meant the coming clash would be a struggle between two roughly equal groups of sick and exhausted soldiers.
0: Breckinridge watched with dismay as his command melted away, and then he learned that the Federal garrison was supported by five Union naval vessels. Casting about for some way to improve the odds, he hit upon the idea of launching a simultaneous attack on Baton Rouge by land and by river.
1: Breckinridge telegraphed Van Dorn, asking him to send the Arkansas down from Vicksburg If all went as planned, the rusty ironclad would scatter Porter's little flotilla of Union warships, while Breckinridge's men overwhelmed the Federal garrison and recaptured Baton Rouge.
0: This was just the sort of high-risk, all-or-nothing gamble that Van Dorn found irresistible, and so he assured Breckinridge that the Arkansas would make an appearance on the appointed day.
1: The Federals detected Breckinridge's approach to Baton Rouge. Williams deployed his 2,500 men on the east side of the city to await the rebel attack. If the Confederate assault gained ground, Williams planned to fall back to a line overlooking the Mississippi River, where he could be supported by the big guns of Porter's flotilla. The Federal commander also heard rumors that the Arkansas might participate in the attack, and he informed Porter of the possibility.
0: On the foggy morning of August fifth, 1862, Breckinridge struck the center of the Federal defensive lines. For a time, the Confederates gained ground, pressing the Yankees back into the eastern outskirts of Baton Rouge, but mounting casualties sapped the momentum of their advance.
1: Williams was killed midway through the battle, but the Federal troops continued to resist stubbornly. As the day wore on, Breckinridge awaited some sign that the Arkansas had arrived, but he finally gave up and withdrew, having been unable to overwhelm the Union defenders.
0: Each side had put around 2,500 men into the fight, and the Federals suffered 383 casualties, while the Confederates lost 467 men.
1: The next day Breckinridge learned why the Arkansas had failed to support his assault. You see, Van Dorn tended to ignore inconvenient facts and rush ahead, but on this occasion he outdid himself. Because as soon as Van Dorn received Breckinridge's request for assistance from the Arkansas, he directed the Ironclad to depart at once for Baton Rouge. But the battered gunboat was in the midst of repairs, and without her captain or chief engineer, and she was manned by a skeleton crew of, of sailors. In addition, the Arkansas would have to steam 270 miles down river in only 30 hours. Nevertheless, orders were orders, and so the Arkansas sailed away from Vicksburg early on August 3rd under the command of her first officer, Lieutenant Henry Stevens.
0: The rickety gunboat experienced a host of mechanical problems during the voyage, but still managed to reach the vicinity of Baton Rouge on the appointed day. Unfortunately, this maritime miracle was achieved by racing the engines at top speed between breakdowns, and just north of Baton Rouge, the propulsion system disintegrated, and the pilot nosed the Arkansas into the west bank of the river.
2: The
1: crew worked through the night to repair the engines and drivetrain, but to no avail. As soon as one part was repaired or replaced, another failed. The next day, August 6th, the day after Breckenridge's failed attack on Baton Rouge, Porter inched upstream in the ironclad Essex, drawing ever closer to the strangely stationary rebel gunboat. The two ironclads exchanged several long-range shots, but neither scored any hits. Lieutenant Stevens, though, realizing the situation was hopeless, ordered the crew ashore and set the Arkansas on fire. Thus ended the brief but dramatic career of the only operational Confederate ironclad in the West. She had been in active service just 23 days.
0: Disappointed at the dismal turn of events at Baton Rouge, Van Dorn nevertheless remained determined to secure the mouth of the Red River. If Baton Rouge couldn't be made into the southern anchor of a defensive corridor along the Mississippi, then another place would have to do.
1: On August thirteenth, a week after the battle, Van Dorn settled on the village of Port Hudson, 16 miles north of Baton Rouge. And directed Breckinridge to march his command to that point.
0: It turned out that Breckinridge had come to the same conclusion a day earlier. He had written Van Dorn and said that, quote, Port Hudson is one of the strongest points on the Mississippi, and batteries there will command the river more completely than at Vicksburg.
1: Confederate soldiers occupied Port Hudson in mid-August and began constructing artillery positions on the bluffs overlooking the Mississippi.
0: When Farragut learned of the Confederate attack on Baton Rouge and the expected appearance of the Arkansas, he immediately steamed north from New Orleans with every available warship, determined to catch the rebel ironclad and destroy her. It's easy to imagine his satisfaction, though, when he reached Baton Rouge and learned that the enemy gunboat was no longer a threat.
1: Ironically, Van Dorn's unsuccessful lunge at Baton Rouge and his subsequent occupation of Port Hudson caused Union General Benjamin Butler to consolidate his forces around New Orleans. As part of this pullback, the Federals evacuated Baton Rouge on August twenty-first. The garrison thoughtfully boxed up the books of the Louisiana State Library and carried them to New Orleans for safekeeping. They also removed a statue of George Washington from the State House and sent it to New York with instructions that it should be, quote, held in trust for the people of Louisiana until they shall have returned to their senses.
0: The ships of Farragut's West Gulf Blockading Squadron, accompanied by the Essex and Sumter, escorted the Union transports downriver to New Orleans.
1: And so, by the summer of 1862... Union political and military leaders were gaining a better idea of what it would be required to achieve their goals in the West. Confederate authorities were also able to see where their energies and resources should be directed in the future. And despite experiencing a string of defeats and disasters across the vast region, the rebels had nevertheless established a broad corridor across the Mississippi Anchored by two formidable defensive positions at Vicksburg and Port Hudson. For the next ten months, those two places would be the focus of an intensifying struggle between Federal and Confederate forces for control of the Mississippi River.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is, once again, Echoes of Glory, Illustrated Atlas of the Civil War, by the editors of Time Life Books.
1: If you're wondering about where all these places that we've been mentioning are located in relation to one another, Memphis, Baton Rouge, Helena, the Yazoo River, Port Hudson, and Vicksburg, then it pays to have a good Civil War atlas in hand as you listen to the podcast. Yes, you can look all of these places up on the internet, but for some of us, there's no substitute for an actual, honest-to-God book. Well, anyway, as we've mentioned many times before, our go-to Civil War atlas is this one by Time Life. It's long out of print, but still readily available.
0: As always, you can head over to the podcast website, www.civilwarpodcast.org, and find a handy list of all of our book recommendations.
1: Then we want to thank those of you who went to patreon.com this past week and signed up there for the Strawfoot Brigade. Kevin, Ray, Guy, John B., Mary, Steph, Svante, John W., Steve, Odysseus, Garrett, Rich, and Bradley. And just yesterday, we released members episode number 87, which was the fourth and final installment of our look at Stoneman's Raid during the Chancellorsville campaign. So we hope all the members of the Strawfoot Brigade have enjoyed that story arc.
0: All right. This was a long one. So thanks for hanging in there and listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, A History Podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we'll be talking about some guy named Ulysses S. Grant. But until then, take care.
1: Thanks, everyone. Bye.